Nicholas Cage. <laughs> Nicholas Cage. 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 In Cage we trust. <laughs> okay, we good to go. Yeah. Great. God, where do you start with a movie I don't know, that man. is so um, kind of inconsequential? Because um, we were on a roll for a while. Yeah. Well, I guess not. The The first one was, well, even even the best of times was at least like... Ludicrous. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like we've been really spoiled because we've had such good films. Yeah. Like su- such, you know... Uh, singular pieces of cinema that we could sink our teeth into. So I, I can uh, I can pull some stuff out of uh, the unauthorized biography of Nicolas Cage, the man behind Captain Corelli. Is this un- oh, no, th- this is not Uncaged. Th- uncaged no, un- is this one right uncaged, here. Uncaged uh, might have some material for us, too. But um, before I rewatched this movie, which I have now seen two times, um, and I remembered nothing about it, uh, <laughs> I still, my brain is already like purging, purging it because it's so boring. It has, I guess, an interesting production history in that, like, um, it was, uh, God, I'm like falling asleep thinking about it. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, Richard Benjamin is the director, and he, he was an actor. Um, who worked with like Peter O'Toole and uh, people like that. And um, this is a a movie he wanted to get made. uh, And it it ended up getting shopped from like three different studios. Like this was in, you know, this is the early 80s. So like we were talking before we started about Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, like kind of before the, the independent cinema funded by big, big budget studios, like, just as that had basically collapsed as a thing. Like, so now you have kind of like, this is an independent movie, kind of an independent feature that is now getting kind of handed off from studio to studio. The guy who wrote it ended up writing all the Harry Potter movies. All of them? Except for one, except for the Order really? of the Phoenix. Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, so that's interesting. The The guy who directed it, um, oh, he, he, he went on to do The Money Pit, um, which is pretty good. Oh, is that the one with Goldie Hawn? And, uh, where, uh, yeah, where their house, like, they yeah. buy the house and it, like, falls apart? Yeah, yeah right, it's a funny right. movie. Yeah. He also did My Stepmother is an Alien with Dan Aykroyd and Kim Basinger, and Mermaids with Cher. <laughs> so, um, I, I don't know. Um so he worked with Nick Cage and Cher separately pre-Moonstruck. Yes. So I guess kind of the the big story around around this is that like so you have this this small budget movie, you have three young actors, um, Sean Penn, Nick coming off of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which Nick Cage was infamously cut from basically, uh, and um, and uh, what's her name? Oh, uh, Mag- Elizabeth McGovern. Yeah, yeah, Lady Crawley right. of Downton Abbey, um, and she was in. I've never seen it, but she was also apparently, and she did this movie like back to back with Once Upon a Time in America. 
Oh yeah, which I've never seen, I, I so seen I, I, I don't know what she does in that movie. But she was, she was coming up yeah. at this time, so she um, was like a name. So uh, apparently on set, um, Sean Penn and Nick Cage become friends. Sean Penn starts dating Elizabeth McGovern on the sly, and all three of them decide to uh, to basically not do any publicity um, for this small budget movie. Like, was it like as a fuck you? Like, was was it a po- quote unquote political statement? It, or it, like, what was the reasoning behind that? Were they just like young and didn't give a fuck or why? It's because they were so self-important and like, you know, committed to acting as a craft and not as a, uh, you know, n- not as some sort of, commercial exchange or whatever that uh they they felt that it would belittle their craft to do publicity and also sean penn and elizabeth mcgovern like didn't i think they wanted to kind of keep it secret that they were um this is here i'll read some quotes from uh the unauthorized biography nicholas cage the man behind captain corelli can we can we only use the full title (laughs) of that book every time we refer to it okay great uh, here's this is a little bit about uh, Nicolas Cage being uh, being just totally into his role as he does. Uh, in another incident, Nick's injuries were self-inflicted when, much to the horror of his director, he slashed his arm as the cameras rolled. I was really into breaking the fourth wall, he explained. I was looking for hyper-realism, that kind of visceral aura. And I took out a pocket knife and basically cut my arm open. I wanted the blood to flow on film. And Richard, the director, said, wrong movie, Nick. Let's cool it. He didn't like the idea at all. I don't blame him. That's like that's a completely psychotic thing to do. <laughs> Clearly wrong movie. I don't know what scene merits merits that in this movie. I mean, in any movie, maybe, but especially this movie. Um the three young stars were temperamental and refused to cooperate with the publicity machine, which is so important to marketing films. Nick and Penn refused to speak to him at all, while McGovern gave a reluctant interview in the presence of the film's publicist, but refused to discuss working with Penn, admitting she had, he had sworn her to secrecy. Even so, Penn was so annoyed that she had spoken to the publicist at all that he shook her trailer during the interview, giving the impression that there was an earthquake. Uh, so man, it must have been great to be these guys at yeah. this point in their life because they just there were no rules, no rules, and I mean, really, like who I, so you have these these people from these people behind the scenes in Hollywood who are trying to make a little movie that somebody loves, you know, it's somebody's passion project, and they're they have these young stars, and the big studio system that was supporting them is kind of tenuous and they want this to happen and they're like okay we're gonna do it we're gonna make this movie and then you get these fucking kids who are like i'm sorry i'm an actor i can't um like here it says nick's agent irene feldman told the los angeles times why he was reluctant to give interviews nick just wants to work she said to nick acting is just a job he wants to do his best if people want to write about his work on screen he thinks that's fine he just doesn't want to explain himself I mean, okay, that's something that real artists right. have claimed since the beginning of, I don't know, when, when, when was the beginning of the marriage of publicity and art? Yeah, Like, right. who can even pinpoint when that was? But right. I mean, it's something that's been going on, like... you know? Like, there's always self-important artists that are just like, oh, I don't 
I don't want I don't need to explain my work. But it seems interesting to me that that because he he didn't have enough clout at this point yet in his yeah. career to pull that kind of move, you know. Well, and I think that this the, the, I'll read this one more thing. This is uh, uh, Stanley Jaffe and Shirley Lansing are producers, and say uh, this is this is her uh, Sherry Lansing talking to the Los Angeles Times. These particular performers feel that they fulfill their obligation to a film when they leave the set. I'm eternally grateful for their performances that they delivered and for creating something I care about so passionately, but it's terribly frustrating and it puts me in a very uncomfortable position as far as creating awareness of this film. Let's face it, Stanley Jaffe and Sherry Lansing are not Elizabeth McGovern and Sean Penn. When it comes to selling the movie, I respect their integrity, but I disagree with their position. I honestly believe that your job doesn't end until the movie's on the last screen in the smallest city, which I think that's very fair to say. Yeah, I didn't just cast you for a performance. I cast you so people would know about the film. Like as much as you don't like the fact that that is what it is, like come on. Well, don't don't try to be a successful actor then. Yeah, exactly. Because you have to know that that's part and parcel of the job of having a name to go with your acting. So maybe that's why. um, I don't think anybody knows about this movie, which is fair because honestly, it's. Who care? I mean, right. that's harsh. I'm sorry to Richard Benjamin and <laughs> Sherry Lansing yeah. that like I feel that way, but it's really like I never would have seen this movie no. ever unless we were doing this podcast. No. I was trying to pinpoint like what about it is because we we've already d- been digging on it really hard, like, but it's not bad. It's not a bad movie. Sure, it's just it's, a very simple movie. It, it's um. All right, last last quote. I think this this is a good segue. This is Nicolas Cage. Um, in hindsight, uh, he says, Nicolas Cage dismissed the film a couple years later. Everybody said it was a nice little movie, he told Cable Guide magazine. <laughs> Cable Guide magazine. I didn't like it myself. I felt it was a Hallmark card, to tell you the truth. I would have made it a little more dangerous. I would have made my character a circus clown going to war. What does that mean? Well, I don't know, but I that I mean that's a classic moment of um, maybe like wrong performance for a film. Yeah, definitely. That, which you can, but that film would have been way more fun to watch. I, I would have watched a, a circus clown going to war. I mean, I think saying it's a hallmark card of a film is perfect. Like this, this is the kind of thing that belongs on the Hallmark Channel or Lifetime, if. Those movies had a little bit bigger budget and um, a little bit better writing. Like, yeah, if this had been pitched during the uh, era of cable TV, right, it would have been a made-for-TV movie. Yeah, and no, nobody would talk about it after watching it. No one would maybe tune in to see it, but if they landed on it, they would watch it and uh, be like, "Hey, that was okay." You know? Yeah, that's the thing. It was it was not it was not a bad movie. It was just extremely innocuous. Yeah, and, but again, like what what is it? I was trying to pinpoint like what is it that makes it so innocuous? Like, okay, for a low budget uh, period film, which is hard to do, you know, it looks pretty good. Uh, like it it looks like the forties, um, and yeah, I I guess if. You, like everyone else, ha- haven't seen Racing with the Moon. It's about uh, 
two young men who are getting ready to go to World War II, growing up in small town, Northern California, um, just learning about life, learning about friendship. I don't know. Learning about love. I mean, I don't know if they learn anything. You don't think so? I don't know. Yeah, maybe not. They're, yeah. It's the, hard to tell, I think. And it, that might be part of what's wrong with the movie right. is you don't really sense all of this stuff happens to them, which, yeah. which we'll get into in the specifics in a second. But all of this stuff happens to them. And then at the end of the movie, I don't really get the sense of any growth. No, yeah, the status quo kind of stays the same. Well, like, yeah, that's a good point. Like, the Nicolas Cage and Sean Penn are friends. Their friendship gets kind of tested a little bit, and Sean Penn falls in love. But then they just go to war. They're just friends still. And that's nice, you know? Um, but it's not that exciting. I was wondering while watching this movie if how someone who actually lived through that era, like someone who, who was a teen um, during World War II, if or when they watched this movie, like if they enjoyed it more, if, they, if this spoke to their experience as like something true, or if this was as like kind of just like maudlin as it seemed to me, like. I think doing any sort of period piece, especially of uh, a time in the country's history that was unbeknownst to people at the time, a turning point. Yeah. Like civilization and society in America irrevocably changed. Right. With World War II. Right. And so I think anytime you make a movie about that period or, or any period, you know, where there's sea changes like that, um, you there's a tendency to make it kind of grossly sappy. Yeah. And I, this movie fell into that trap. For sure. But the thing that's interesting to me is that the director was too young to even experience right. this right. this sort of thing. So he didn't have this time period. So he didn't really have any personal connection. Yeah. Except Everyone maybe, involved. Right, yeah. Except maybe, I don't know, maybe his the stories from his dad. Right. Maybe he based it on. I don't really know where he got... Because it was definitely his passion project. But I don't mm -hmm. know where he got the fire and drive to like commit this to film yeah well and there's not a lot of fire and drive on screen like i, I there's mean, almost none yeah except for the post-abortion scenes yeah. where there's some like pushback there's almost no like extreme emotion going on in this movie no. at all. it's very like straight line the entire time yeah and there's a lot happening like you said there's a, a bunch of little threads but they make but they don't add up to anything no they um it's it's so like I, I guess kind of what I was uh, was thinking of um, kind of comparing this movie unfavorably to is The Last Picture Show, um, the Bogdanovich movie. Yeah, I see what you uh, mean. Um, just because, you know, it's a small town on the cusp of change and no one can kind of see the change coming. And But that movie has so much, like, depth and like gravitas and and the things things that are like you you get the the small town sensibility um the surfacey stuff and you see the actual stuff kind of moving underneath and um without it kind of i don't know it kind of has both um the small town simplicity and the kind of raw humanity and this movie was like 
I appreciated the small town. So I was like, oh, imagine what that would be like where you just, you know, I don't know. You're, you only know that many people in your small town. Yeah. Walking around. Like it did. I guess it kind of transported me to that place. I can't believe that they were filming in that uh, that town in Northern California. Oh, and it, I know. It looks I'm, I don't think they built that town. No, no, they didn't. Looks like it was there. It was um, uh, not not Marin. Uh, what's it called? Um, Mendocino. Mendocino. It was it was somewhere in Mendocino that they were filming, and they chose that town specifically because it had it was relatively unchanged. The infrastructure was relatively unchanged since that time. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, the the only thing they they pumped uh, a lot of a lot of the budget into fixing up was the the steam engine. Oh, <laughs> uh, right. was had been sitting. It was actually part of the town's property. It had been just sitting uh, disused for like 40 years or oh, something. Oh, no shit. And then when they got there, they chose the town before they realized that that it had the steam engine there. But once they got there, uh, they were like, oh, we also need a steam engine. And so the studio paid for the city's steam engine to get refurbished. Wow. Um, so they could use it for the movie. That's cool. Yeah. Which, speaking of the steam... Good, seg- good segue, Miles. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of the steam engine... The steam engine was like one of the only parts of the movie I think that was striving for some kind of symbolism yeah. that they were trying to inject something that was heavier and meant more yeah. than the rest of the movie. Yeah, very, but it was just very extre- hard. But it was an extremely vague thing, and yeah. I didn't really understand. Even at the end when they were running after it, and I you, know. you know, you got a sense of like, oh, like this is supposed to mean something, you oh, know, yeah. because the train had been in the movie before. There was a whole scene where they were racing it. <laughs> right. And then at the end, oh, they're back to racing the train, even as they're going off to war. And then you understand that you're supposed to make some kind of symbolic connection, right. but you don't know what it is. Yeah, no, I, I had no, like, emotion. I was like, oh, I see, you did something. Because, what, the, you know, you see the kids early on putting the pennies on the tracks and the train squishes them. Does that work, by the way? Have you ever done that? I have done that, and it does work. Interesting. I didn't, I didn't, I've, I never have, but I've always wondered if that was just a something. You and I should race with the moon sometime. Dude, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Dave, will you race with the moon with me? Yes. Yes. At, uh, also, where does the title come from? Is it anywhere in the movie? I was thinking, like, wa- watching it, I was like, maybe the moon is the name of the, the train. Maybe that's just, you know, a term for growing up. Just growing up in a small town, racing with the moon. Okay, talking about the writer who, okay, we know is a talented writer in retrospect. This felt like... Was this his first film or one of his first films? I don't know, actually. I, it's definitely one of his first films. It feels like like a homework assignment that maybe he gave himself, you know? He was like... I wonder if I could write something that baby boomers will like cream over. You know, I, I, I wonder if I can make that, you know, this kind of movie. It feels like an assignment that he yeah, did, it does definitely. that he did well. You know, he turned it in and got a B, like uh, like a B minus. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it was like it was like a solid like eighty three percent. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, but you know what? I like him. He's been trying really hard all the rest of the semester, so I'm going to go ahead and just give him the B because I think I think he really put some good effort in, you know? He's, he shows a lot of promise. Okay, so one nice thing that uh, we saw in this that we've been seeing is 
some famous faces who were not yet famous. We saw Crispin Glover again. Oh, yeah, that's right. Crispin Glover was in it. Oh, it's it's funny that Crispin and Nick and Sean Penn yeah. all were, like, interconnected at this point in their lives. I know. And I were they – they were, I'm assuming, friends outside of their, their jobs, right? Yeah, like, hung out with each other, each other and stuff. Well, Sean, yeah. Sean Penn and Nick Cage became friends after this movie. Um, but didn't they were in they were in Fast Times together? So yeah, were, did they were they did they not know each other then? Or no, Sean was like Sean was too uh, too cool. He was like big movie star or becoming big movie star, and uh, like uh, this is this is what uh, the unauthorized biography Nicholas Cage, the man behind Captain Corelli, says. Nick and Penn became fast friends, despite Nick's awe of him from the first time they had acted together in Fast Times. He recalled, "I remember Sean saying." The nerd from Fast Times can really act, and we became friends. How condescending is that? <laughs> yeah, I know. The, my sense of Sean Penn as a person around this point is he's a real prick. Um, around this point, I feel like you'd never really went away. Well, okay, so they be, Nick Cage and Sean Penn become friends on this film, but they have a public falling out as friends in 1999 um, after Nick Cage has been in... Uh, you know, face off and is just doing action movies. Sean Penn said in 1999, Nick Cage is no longer an actor. Uh, he told the New York Times he could be again, but now he's just more like a performer. And then he said, um, mass market movies like Snake Eyes can, quote, murder an actor's voice and make it impossible for him to do a, quote, pure movie again. Yeah, but that was some of Nick Cage. That era was some of Nick Cage's best work. I I think, which is interesting to me, because maybe maybe Nick Cage actually thrives under those conditions. I think, yeah, I think twisting a role or like or like like Face Off or I haven't seen Snake Eyes, but uh I'm assuming Snake Eyes. I mean, all of those you know action movies that he did in the '90s. Like Con Air, yeah, all of that stuff. I, love I mean, his performance that's like Air. that's prime Nick Cage right there. Well, I think you have you have movies that are. I think Nick Cage is really transforming and elevating through his performance. He he is uh, I, a lot. What you get a lot with action movies and performers like male stars in action movies is people kind of playing like a rote tough guy role. And right. I think, and Nick Cage, it seems falls into that later in his career. But at this point, like, I really think he was, um, his performances in those action movies is really interesting. And I think it kind of speaks to a, a big difference between his style of acting and like Sean Penn's style of acting. Cause in, in this movie, you there's a little of both from both of them yeah and they're not they're they're really not the same kind of actor um i i would say that the most interesting performance moments in this movie are when nick cage is being crazy oh for for actually for sure i think the best scene in the movie in terms of just nicholas cage's performance wise the tattoo was pretty much all of the scenes that he was drunk yeah from the tattoo through racing the train mm-hmm. Um, you know, that whole sequence at that, that night right. was just like, that was the best part of the and, movie. And, and it like, was, and it was Nick Cage unhinged the right. whole time. And you can, you know, I mean, 
we, we can say, is that good acting? Is it whatever? I mean, it's, it is essentially kind of what he ended up doing in Leaving Las Vegas, um, where he's just being crazy. But it was way more interesting to watch than... Sean Penn, Sean Penn being mopey and angsty the brooding. whole time. I mean, so much angsty cigar, uh, cigarette smoking in that yeah. movie. It was like every single scene, Sean Penn like looks off into the distance, tortured, and like pulls a drag off his cig, and right. then he's like, "I'm going to war in a couple months. Right, only got a few weeks left to be a teenager." Oh, I'm going to grow up so fast. What? It's like so heavy handed. Yeah, I know. Which maybe it was. I mean, it must be really, really, really rough. I have no concept. Neither of us do no. of, of what the draft really means. But I don't know. It seems like that, that was just laid on so thick. Okay. So question, what, what are the great Sean Penn performances? Put me on the spot. I gotta. I gotta. I'm, look I'm at looking. A, yeah, here, I, I, I have to look at a list. I can't. I can't think of anything. He was off Harvey Milk. That was a really good performance. I didn't actually see that, but I heard. I mean, did he won the? Did he win the Oscar? He's definitely nominated no. for that. Yeah, but um, I mean, that's he, he, that was a transformative performance. Dude, honestly, Spicoli maybe is like <laughs> one of his greatest performances. Great. Like that's that sounds like a really stupid thing to say for someone that's had such an illustrious career after that. But he seriously, that is. That is a phenomenal that might be performance. His best performance. It's definitely his uh, most indelible character. Okay, I'm I'm looking this up now. I am Sam. Ugh. Ooh. Ooh. I mean, bad taste. Like everyone seemed to like it, but you know, I don't know that you could successfully play a retarded person. Yeah. And like really totally get away with it. I mean, Dead Man Walking. Oh, he was in the Thin Red Line. Oh yeah. He was really good in that. Yeah. I don't know. There's some, yeah, Dead Man Walking, Carlito's Way. Yeah. He was in some, like, pretty good stuff. Mystic River's great. Yeah, right. Um, but it, So this it, is now going to be a Sean Penn podcast? Well, it's nice to... Pencast? Pen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess, but just thinking about those performances, like, I see, <clears throat> I can see from Sean Penn's perspective, uh... That he, okay, he's doing great internal work and doing this kind of thing. Those are performances that Nick Cage wouldn't have done. No, because Nick Cage doesn't work internally. N no, or he, he, yeah, I don't know. Well, no, I don't want to say he doesn't work internally, but the extent of his acting isn't internal work. It's, you know what I mean? I, I think so. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what you would call it. He calls it nouveau shamanic. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's cool. Yeah. That's not, I mean, it sounds like a douchey thing to say, but it actually is, that's kind of a cool way of describing it. I find that less douchey, though, than Sean Penn's kind of, you know, uh, oh, you're a performer, not yeah, an actor. Yeah, right. Like, he's great. He's a great actor, but, like, beyond Spicoli, like, can he have fun doing it? Or could he, could he have... Ben, I, I feel like Nicolas Cage has more range, which is weird. Like, Sean Penn might have more depth, but Nicolas Cage has range. And at least at this point in their careers, like, I'll, I'll watch Nicolas Cage bugging out for, you know, yeah. in anything. Yeah, but I, I agree. I, my, my quota on Sean Penn brooding is, like, full. <laughs> Possibly for the rest of my life. Yeah, I don't. I'm already bored with it. So for whatever that's worth, the 
that tattoo scene is really fun. Wants a, what, what does he say? He's like, he's like, I want a big American bird of freedom right on my chest. Yeah. <laughs> so those Japs will see me coming. He also doesn't, he seems so excited to go to war. Yeah. He seems like Nick, like Nick Cage's character seems so amped to go to war. And, and, you know? and what does he have, I, I mean, beyond, you know, like, uh, I mean, his, his character, like, it, it makes sense. There is something kind of poignant that he's a fuck up. I think that it gave a lot of small town kids that were essentially just written off as either fuck ups or they would have just done what their parents did. It right. gave them a chance to feel like they mattered and they like meant like they, they could have made a difference somehow. Uh-huh. Of course, the reality of that then is you go to war and get your leg blown off immediately, and like you realize, just like Michael Madsen. Oh, that was the other thing. That was the that was that scene. I think was the turning point of the movie, uh-huh. where it went from sort of this happy-go-lucky, you know, slice of life teens in a 1940s right. small town to like, oh man, like real life hits you so yeah. hard. I didn't buy it though. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I okay. First of all. What the fuck was that like war reenactment that they were doing? Oh, the 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 school drill? Yeah. Yeah, what was that? Was that, that something a that thing? Yeah, was that something that they actually did? I don't know. Like I I don't know what you learned from that. Like Nick Cage and Sean Penn are pretending to be in war and like on like the school field like pretending to be hurt. Well, no, I think I think it was like a bomb drill or okay. like or like an earthquake drill where it's like if we got attacked uh-huh. This is, you know, this is what you would have to this is this is what the school would have to do this to like Oh, and then there are some girls who are like nurses. Right, who were like and... acting like nurses and then I think I think what that scene proved is that Nick Cage and Sean Penn like like didn't give a yeah, fuck. Yeah, they're not taking it yeah, seriously. Yeah, right. They, like they weren't taking it seriously. Cuz they put on Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. Yeah, and then they just turned ran it into off. A party. They just ran off. Yeah. Um after that and right. did something See, I don't even remember what happened after that. I, I was like, <laughs> <But> <laughs> they they chased the train, or they, or they, uh, you know, they hustled some guys in a pool hall, or yeah. they did whatever, or they, whatever they did after that. That scene was crazy, actually. Yeah. The 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 whole like hustle, the pool yeah. hustle scene. That was actually a fun scene. Yeah, that was maybe the most successful overall scene of the movie. Again, I think. though, it, it adds up to nothing. Like, have you ever watched Miami Vice? No. Okay, the guy that they hustle, the main Navy guy that they hustle, yeah. was like a was a main role on Miami Vice. Really? Yeah, he was he was the other detective that wasn't Don Johnson or oh. or Tubbs. Also, I think the other sailor was Dana Carvey. Dana Carvey? Dana Carvey is apparently in this movie, and I was I trying to I didn't I notice. To I didn't catch out. him at all. I was trying to figure out where. That's what IMDb says. It might be wrong. Um, I should hope not. Also. Also in this movie, uh, Carol Kane, the great Carol yeah. Kane, as, as the hooker. As the hooker that they, <laughs> that they take on the double date so that yeah. they have another girl to, to go with. Again, That's, though, like, as we're recalling these scenes, I'm like, that was kind of fun. It well, was that's the nice, thing is, if you take it scene by scene, yeah. you realize maybe it wasn't that bad. But I think as a whole, it just kind of fell into oblivion. Yeah, it's just like... Because nothing really connected. Yeah, it's just... It, it, was, it was a mildly entertaining series of vignettes, but it wasn't like yeah. a cohesive film. Exactly. The abortion scene was kind of the only thing that had... That that landed with any kind of like moral weight for me, even more than the the war stuff, which felt really rote. 
Like, well, I feel like they blew their load on the abortion thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. they they saved it up uh-huh. for the first hour and fifteen minutes of the movie. Yeah, and then it was like. You know, ten minutes of abortion, and yeah. then back to business as usual, like it, for the end of the movie. Right. I mean, I think Elizabeth McGovern character's kind of moral situation of she wants to help this guy who she likes, and he thinks she's rich, so she steal something to like. I don't know. Like that. That's a hard position to be in. I don't know. Like that was the one thing where I felt myself kind of like feeling for like a character and kind of a complex situation. I wanted them to extrapolate on, on that. Like I, I wish it it would have been a much more difficult movie to, to, to watch, I think, Uh but I wish that they had really, really milked that abortion subplot for all it was worth. Cause that really would have been, that's kind of what the movie is missing. Yeah. You know, and, and, and they almost, they almost handled it in a really nuanced uh, emotional way, right? But then they didn't give it enough room to breathe and really go there with it. No, they were and, kind of and afraid of it. Also, so so the girlfriend that Nick Cage gets pregnant, yeah, she's in the first part of the movie, uh-huh. and then she doesn't ever show up again until he takes her to the doctor's house, uh-huh. and then and then you don't see her again. Yeah, and then that's and she, you know, and then and then Elizabeth McGovern is comforting her afterwards in the back seat of the car. Yeah, and then that's it. Here's what I had a problem with: they use the abortion to to give you a sense of Nicolas Cage being some sort of like irresponsible arrested man child. Uh-huh. Which, yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with her, and even it doesn't have as much to do with him because it it really right. is it, about Elizabeth McGovern, which is really about Sean Penn. Right. But my thing is, is like that's that's a really irresponsible way to use an abortion as yeah. a plot device. Shitty. Right. It's shitty. it's really a shitty way to approach that whole mm-hmm. situation, especially back. This was in the '40s when abortion was illegal and extremely dangerous. Yeah. And they just brush over that entirely yeah she the woman who has an abortion like she doesn't she doesn't even have like a name barely like we don't she we don't know Susie, i think Susie. i don't know see i don't know it doesn't it like doesn't matter like what matters is that elizabeth mcgovern is like sad and really like the emotional climax of that whole scene is her revealing to sean penn that she's not rich (laughs) which is like kind of and he's like you know I don't care. And then he buys her those ugly fucking shoes, those terrible shoes, and they're going to get married. Like it, that. No, they're not. He's going to go to war and either die or when he comes back, she's going to she's going to be, have, you know, like that, that. That's that's the thing. That's the interesting thing about this movie. Maybe one of the only redeeming <laughs> like aspects of it when all is said and done. What happens to these characters after the war? Yeah. Like what happens? Uh, Nick Cage is dead. I'll buy that. Sean Penn, I don't know. He comes back to the town and like opens a soda shop or something. Okay. Remember, remember when he jumped behind the counter and gave her that pie? Dude, teenage boys will literally do anything to get their dick wet. That was ridiculous. That was absurd. And then he basically stalks her again, right? Yeah. Where he like follows her home mm-hmm. and goes back to the movie theater where she works, and then and then follows her into the into the diner again. Yeah, uh, second movie in the series where stalking is shown as really effective in uh, 
in getting a girl to like See, you. that's the thing is like teens have absolutely no perspective on love, but it makes great plot devices. Yeah. Um, I mean, he doesn't have a lot to do in that small town, you know, it's just, I guess, getting uh, obsessed with this girl. I guess. Um, I thought it was funny that she didn't know who he was. In this town that's, yeah, like, so small. Right. How big is the town? Right. Like, I would assume that all the kids would go to high school together. Like, they've never met? Right. She hadn't even heard of him. Um, okay, so a couple of things that uh, I think are interesting um, in just in terms of uh, this movie as a, a time piece for 1984, uh, Boobs. There's, there's oh yeah, more, more boobs. boobs, dude. There were mad boobs in teenage movies in the eighties. Yeah. I didn't realize that that was like so acceptable. Yeah. This also, this movie was only rated PG, but there was <sighs> definitely there was definitely a sex scene, and there yeah. was definitely unobstructed frontal nudity. Yeah, and uh, that's like for a movie this like middle of the road, like watch it with your mom and dad. Like it, it you know, that uh, scene at the lake is pretty racy. <laughs> I wrote Lakeside Lovin' in my notes. It was that racy. Um, also, I think the use of abortion as a plot device that, you know, it so cavalierly uses was is that wouldn't happen in post-moral majority America. Like, they... They're so thoughtless about it as like, what's a, what's a thing that would be kind of tough for them to go through? And... Um, but that's the thing. What's a thing that would be tough for Sean Penn and Nicolas Cage and Elizabeth McGovern's characters to go through? Yeah. Not the actual girl getting no. an abortion. Yeah. She's barely even in the movie. Right. But you'd never see that in a movie now. Like, you'd never see abortion as, like, a throwaway kind of, like, um, it's, it's too hot button. So that was both of those things being kind of, like, thoughtlessly included I thought were interesting. Uh, the Okay, the other thing that really bothered me was the fucking score. Um, it was so maudlin, and ugh. it was completely uh, anachronistic. Yeah, all the big band music just pissed me off. Like, I, I understand. It's like someone's like, what music was there in the 40s? Like, it was with horns and stuff. So they just did that. But, like, maybe this is just me having been taught by other uh, pieces of pop culture to like you know connect to A with B, but when I hear like swinging big band music, I think about like the city. I think about like jazz nights and like swing. I don't think about these like kids tooling around in their like beater car in Nowheresville, like going to play pool. Like it, I don't know. It just it felt it didn't fit for me. It and uh, and if it wasn't the big band music, it was this yeah this like symphonic just fucking acoustic guitars and swelling strings and like ugh it was awful even like Sean Penn and Elizabeth McGovern they meet at his little secret hideout and he teaches her to play fucking heart and soul on the piano like give me a break it's 
it's funny because he there's the whole part at the beginning of the movie with the mom and the piano teacher yeah. where the piano teacher's trying to show him that classical piece <laughs> yeah. and he basically is like I'm going to do what I want and then he just starts playing like some boogie woogie piano yeah. and like the piano teacher leaves in a huff. Yeah, he like Okay, so then later his monocle on, basically flies off. He's like no. And then later on when they go to the the secret hideout uh on the bluffs and there was that piano there and she's like Oh, Sean Penn, play something for me. And then he doesn't choose to, like, rip out some killer, like, uh, ragtime piano. (laughs) But he chooses to play that classical piece and does it really well and beautifully. I think that – I think it's funny. I think it says something about his character that that's what he chose to play her. Uh Like, he was trying to impress her with how sophisticated he was when in reality he, like – couldn't care less. Yeah. Yeah. So he he chooses the the classical piece he knows – um, to score him some puss, but uh, he uh, he throws out the big the boogie woogie stuff just to like make that I don't know it's just a shithead. I <laughs> Sean Penn is a shithead in this movie. <laughs> I don't care. Oh. <laughs> Uh, that that's all I have. Yeah, I'm I, done. I'm yeah. What else can you say about this stupid movie? Um, I wrote down a couple quotes. One second you're John Wayne, the next you're Minnie Mouse. Oh, right, yeah, when he talks about getting his dick blown off by the landmine or something. Oh, is that what that was about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I ain't gonna be no sap to some skirt. When I'm finished killing Japs, I'm done. Done with what? Done with uh, this movie. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right, so next week uh, we're returning back to Francis Ford Coppola in um, The Cotton Club, which... Is going to be a much richer cinematic tapestry. Is it? That's good. That's good to hear. I've never seen this movie. Having, despite having tried to dig into a lot of Coppola's, you know, post seventies heyday. It's no Rumblefish, um, but it's definitely. I mean, I don't think Coppola can make something that's not ridiculously ambitious. So, um, and if there's one thing that Racing with the Moon is not. And it's ridiculously ambitious. On that note. All right. Oh, um, if you're listening and you don't know, we're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud, Heat Seeking Panther. We have an email, heatseekingpanther at gmail.com. Before we started this, I saw we have five followers on SoundCloud. Already? Yeah. I don't, a couple of them don't seem like real people. Are they bots? They look kind of like bots. If you're a bot, follow us on SoundCloud. Yeah, please. Tell all your bot friends. 